morning. You awake? Ready to get into the word? Yes, Stucky will respond. Come on. Can I get an amen, Stucky? <laughs> All right. Uh, we're in Roman. No, not Romans. There is no Romans 20. Uh, we're in Luke 20. One of us should know where we're going today. Uh, Luke 20, beginning in verse 19. So if you will, get that text before you. Um, after studying a passage during the week, it's interesting. At the beginning of the week, I usually think, what in the world do you do with this? And by the end of the week, I am cutting out a whole bunch of stuff in the, uh, the sermon. But anyway, after studying for a while, I will open up a commentary of someone I trust just to make sure I'm not wandering off into some sort of heresy. Um, and this week, I opened up Philip Ryken's commentary on Luke, and the first few lines of it were this. He said, if you want to start a good argument, start talking about religion or politics, either one. But if you want to start a war, then bring your religion into your politics. Few things seem to cause more difficulty than an unholy alliance between political power and religious faith. Well, if you know me, I am not the type of person that wants to start a good argument, not about serious things. Um, Not like Sam Cassing, who's the instigator in our our building here, wherever you are up there. Uh, I I really don't. And, And... And yet the Lord's timing, here we come to this passage today, it's about religion, it's about politics, and if I'm honest, it's a bit daunting uh, to even come to this passage, because right now we're in the midst of just political overload in the world, uh, everywhere. Uh, The media at this point called the election for Joe Biden, while Donald Trump, uh, President Trump, and many others believe there's been voter fraud. Uh, and the church, the, the bride of Christ all over the nation, all over the nation is, is struggling to be united in the Lord because so many have accepted this idea that, that someone's political views are a litmus test, an infallible litmus test uh, of what their faith is, is in Jesus Christ. And, and so let me remind you before we even get started here that among the 12 apostles, and we talked about this a while ago, but among the 12 apostles were Matthew, who was the left-wing tax collector, and there's Simon, who is the right-wing zealot. Two guys that, politically speaking, could not be more different from each other. And here is the Lord uniting them together in the faith, within the same group, making them work together in this brotherhood. And let me remind you of this, too. that I wouldn't be surprised if these two guys actually accused each other and suspected each other of this being the truth, but neither of them turn out to be the betrayer in the group. Both of them go faithfully to their grave, united in Christ. Now, before we do read this passage, I do want to acknowledge that we are in the midst, or when we're in the midst of any situation, when we're experiencing it, that's when we need to know God's word probably more than ever on that situation. Uh, what does God command us in that situation? And at the same time, we're in the, when we're in the midst of it, it, it's really the time we are the most resistant to any sort of correction, any sort of call to submission to God's word. And, and you know it because the, the last thing you want to hear when you are like going crazy and upset about something is someone to say, calm down. That's not when you want to hear it. That's what I fear we can walk into if we're not careful in these kind of things. And so I I ask one thing of you this morning, only one thing, and that's that you'll desire to understand God's word here. That you'll desire to understand how God calls us to live out this teaching in, in this wonderful democracy that he has providentially placed us in. And, and as a reminder, just before, right, we're going to read the passage now, but just to put it in the perspective, in case you forgot from last week, um, Jesus told a parable last week, and it condemns the Jewish leaders. Uh, They didn't love it. 
weren't big fans of it. Uh, and, and up to this point, at least, and we don't really see it come to fruition, at least not in the Gospels, but at this point, they, they've been way too pride to repent of anything that's gone on at, at this point. So let's, let's read the passage, Luke 20, beginning in verse 19, and then we'll, we'll seek to understand this. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him, Jesus, at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies and pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as deliver, to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. And so they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. It is, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a Daenerys. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are, are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. Triune God, you are the only one of whom we can truly call awesome. And you have given us your word for our good and for your glory. Please enlighten our minds this morning as we seek to understand and to learn from these words. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So at the end of Luke 19, that's not the passage last week, but Luke 19, a little further before, uh, a few weeks back, we, we learned that the religious leaders wanted to destroy Jesus, to kill him. Uh, but they couldn't do it be, because there's this mass of Jews that are following him and love him. And they know if, if we do anything to him, we're, we're going to be in trouble with that mass. And, and so they want to, in one sense, turn the people against Jesus. Um, and, and so while they hate Jesus, they, they just won't act against them. Because, right, verse 19 there says they feared the people. That was a big deal to them. And so they've sent these spies now who are trying to bait Jesus into saying something. We're just anything that we can use against him, uh, either to make the masses turn against him, or which is going to get them in trouble with the Roman governor, right? Because uh, remember, the, the Jews hate him, want to see him killed, but the Jews do not have the authority to administer the death penalty. They can't do it on their own. And so they have to somehow convince the Romans, hey, you want to kill this guy because he's a threat to you. And, and that's really what they want to see come out of this interaction. Um, they're on this witch hunt, right? Anything we can use against this man. And so I, ideally, these Jews want to have some dirt to tell the Roman governor. And they begin by trying to get Jesus to let his guard down. And you, you see that there, right? The, the spies are sent and they pretend to be sincere. They flatter him. The, the irony of the flattering here, though, is that everything they say is absolutely true. They don't mean it. They don't believe it true. But they're actually speaking truth. Look at verse 21. They say, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly. Nailed it. Uh, you show no partiality. Nailed it but truly teach the way of God. Nailed it, not in the way that TV show nails it. Truly nailed it. It's all absolutely true, but they don't believe it. And then they ask that question that's formulated a lot like the question that Jesus asked previously about John's, uh, John the Baptist's baptism. Uh, and then their hopes is that they're going to trap Jesus. They ask this, is it lawful to give the tribute to, uh, to give tribute to Caesar or not? Now, I imagine at this moment, if you can picture this at all, I imagine these these. Jewish leaders kind of glancing sideways at each other with a smirk, like, oh, what's he going to do here? 
Uh, it's just, you know, sometimes just to get into this moment of how is he going to handle this, this in this moment? Because there's a lot behind that little question that, that when we're just reading, we're going to go right over if we're not careful. The, the tribute is a tax, but it's a very specific tax that Rome required, and they required it for the privilege uh, of the Jews living and, and being protected over the Roman Empire. You know, not so bad. But, but remember... This isn't like Texas when they joined the Union or the United States in 1836. Uh, and it's not like that because Israel didn't willingly join the Roman Empire. They didn't vote on it and, you know, sure, as long as we can succeed kind of thing or anything like that. Uh, what, what happens is in 63 BC, the Roman general Pompey the Great, and you always know when someone named themselves, like uh, what, Ivan the Terrible, probably not himself. Pompey the Great named himself. Uh, anyway, he captures J Jerusalem. And with that comes all sorts of taxes that they have to pay. And you don't hear him complaining about all the taxes, just this one specific one. And that's because in 2 BC, Rome decreed, decreed this, this tribute tax on every individual. So that's fairly recent, right? We're somewhere in the 30s, mid-30s at this point. And this is in 2. You're looking 35 years maybe. Um, and, and so it's recent in most of their memory. And, and they had a much longer news cycle back then, far beyond 24 hours, at least 35 years. And so it's all still fresh in their minds, things they're upset about just hearing this. And, and for us, the, the tribute would, would be like this. If, if Canada came and took over our nation, right, and I realize there's not a chance of that at all because you know Canada, they'd ask permission and they wouldn't do it after we are like, we'd prefer you not take over, but... Anyway, if, if say Canada actually does take over our nation, and, and then they are going to charge us individually, all of us, for the privilege of living in Canada, now that you live in Canada, right? You'd be thinking about, but I still live in America, right here. I haven't moved at all. Uh, some of you understand this. Uh, those of you with any property, I know I've heard before, right, how, how annoying it is uh, that the government is taxing you on land uh, that is already your land, that you're the one who works, you're the one who cares for, uh, Bill, yes, not, not a fan of that tax, right? So, so we understand it on some level to, to tax us on land because it's, it's, it's my land. I paid for this land. Now, imagine how much more the Jews feel it at this moment because do you remember who gave the land to the Jews? God, right? God gave them the land. And so they're thinking, this is our land, God gave it to us, and you want us to pay taxes for the privilege of living on our own land that God gave us? And so when they're asking this question then, is it, is it, is it lawful? They're, they're not asking a question like, does this adhere with, you know, whatever the Roman rules are? It's, of course it's lawful according to Roman rule. What, what they're asking here is a theological question. They, they want to know, since we are under the rule of God, since this really is our land, no matter what claim you think you have on it, given to us by God, does Rome really have the right to demand that we pay this tribute tax? Do they even have the authority to do that? Or, or can we disobey Rome on the basis that they have no authority to ask for this tax? Is, is that a concept you think we understand as Americans? Has our government ever decreed something you disagree with? Ever? Anything that even as Christians we almost universally object to? I mean, like, like when we know that our, our, our taxes being paid to Uncle Sam may contribute to uh, funding abortions or the incarceration of an innocent person or anything else that we see as contrary to God's word, are, are, are we still to pay taxes? Some of you are like, please say no. 
that there were some Jews who, who believed paying the tribute tax was indeed a sin, something they should do, not do, something that no Jews could do. And some of them even refused to pay it, which at times caused these violent uprisings when a group of Jews would, would like rebel against Rome, which is not a good idea. Rome's pretty big. Um, against them. And anyway, are you, are you starting to see, though, what's at stake for Jesus as he comes to this question, that there's all this history, all this weight, all, this, all that's going on with it. And, and so if Jesus says, yeah, it's lawful to pay the tax to Caesar, just like that, he's going to be accused of not caring about the rights of the Jewish people, of not understanding the situation of all, of not, not encouraging them to fight back in the, in the way that most of them believe they should. But if Jesus says it's not lawful to pay the tax to Caesar, he'd be accused of being a traitor against the Roman Empire. And you might know that is what actually becomes the accusation against Jesus later. A few chapters later in Luke 23, verse 2, the Jewish leaders bring him to Pilate, a Roman leader, and they say, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king, they had to explain it to Pilate, I suppose. Um, that's the accusation they're going to make against them. But, but as we're going to see in a moment, it's, it's a lie. The king part's right, but the, the first part, he doesn't forbid paying the tribute. And so thankfully, unlike the Jewish leaders, Jesus doesn't fear the people. Jesus also doesn't fear the government. And he gives an answer that is truth, and as only Jesus could, he, he does so in a way that escapes this perceived checkmate question of the Jewish leaders. Jesus, Jesus says, show me a Daenerys. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And you kind of expect, if you did it right now, right? People digging around, and they didn't have pockets, but bags, whatever they had. And eventually someone pulls out the coin and hands it to them. Uh, probably a mom, because moms always have change for some reason. Um, so anyway, they, they hand him one of these silver coins that was used to pay the tribute tax. And stamped on the coin was the head of Tiberius Caesar. Uh, kids, Caesar is a, a word that means king. Uh, that's roughly what it means. And, and so the image of a man's head isn't so weird to find on a coin, right? We have Abe Lincoln and Jefferson and Hamilton uh, on our money. What is weird here, though, is, is that what, what's written on the coin... Uh, in an abbreviated version of this statement, it's Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. Can you imagine how, how disturbing it was for faithful Jews to have to carry around this coin to, to pay with that had this blasphemous inscription upon it? This is what they had to use day in and day out. I mean, surely they, they hope Jesus is going to say, you know what, forget the government, obey God and his word, this thing's blasphemous, don't even use this anymore. But, but Jesus doesn't say that. And, and so here he is, he's holding this coin, and I wish I could have seen Jesus' expression here as he, as he looks at this coin, because here it is, here is the, the true divine son, the only true divine son, holding this coin, which, which has this, this honors a phony divine son. What, what a moment to have seen that. And when Jesus then asks those whose likeness is upon the coin, his point is that because the image of Caesar is on this coin, it belongs to Caesar. And because it's Caesar's, because you use Caesar's money, they, they're proving you're under this government. This is your government. 
And then Jesus gives an instructive statement on the subject of, uh, of faith and politics here, an answer to how Christians are to live as both citizens of heaven and uh, citizens of a nation state. Jesus says, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And, and look how they respond to Jesus' statement. Uh, Luke records it, verse 26. <clears throat> and they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. These guys want to kill him, and suddenly they're marveling, which has me wondering, what if, what if we just stop here? What, what if we decide to marvel at our Lord's answer, and if we just silently wrestle with it, and we leave it right there? I, I really want you to do that, but I also know you're a bunch of Americans, overwhelmingly, and that's not going to fly, right? You, you want to flesh this out a bit more. I do, too. Uh, that's fair. Which means if we want to flesh this out any further, we've got to answer two questions. What, what belongs to Caesar and what belongs to the Lord? Right? What are the things that belong to our government and what are the things that belong to our, our maker, our God? And in the first, let's look at the things of, of Caesar. Do you all remember <clears throat> throughout uh, the Gospels how often we see Jesus having to correct the Jewish people. They have this idea, this is what the kingdom is going to be, and we can't wait because, you know, you're going to be this political leader, and there's going to be all this military might, and we're, going to, we're just going to run over these people, and we are going to rule, and we're going to be powerful. And, and over and over, Jesus is, 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 is trying to come back. You know, we're, I'm, not, I'm not reestablishing Israel as, as this powerful nation, and, and right? Because that's what the people wanted. They, they wanted God's law and the law of the land to be one and the same. And over and over again, Jesus has pointed out that's not how the kingdom is. That's not what I'm doing. It. That's, that's not what's happening at this point. Now, you know, or as he says in John 18.36, my kingdom is not of this world. But, but could Jesus have done that? Could, could Jesus have set up a powerful nation that legislates morality and, and that upholds God's law? Absolutely. Could, could he have done that? Absolutely. And, and that probably appeals to most of us greatly. There's a big part of me that thinks, yeah, that sounds fantastic because we, we all want to see that, right? We want to see the the lives of unchildren, unborn children protected. We want to see a biblical view of marriage promoted. We want to see true justice. And we want to live in a nature, the nation that honors God and honors his word. But that's not the way God is working in the coming of Christ. The gospel is not a temporal tool for legislating a sinful society. The gospel is a powerful truth for redeeming and transforming sinful souls. You see, it's the will of the Lord for his church, his bride, to, to live in and even flourish under all sorts of governments. Whether we're talking communism or democracy, you know, wherever it is, God has planted us to live fruitfully and to bring the hope of the gospel to those that we live among. Should you be thankful that you live in the nation you do? Absolutely. Are there things to be worried about? Absolutely. But it doesn't matter where you are. God could lift you up today and put you anywhere else on this planet and you can still live faithfully to him. Absolutely. You see, the changes we, we hope to see in the culture, rather, will, will happen as God works the gospel into the hearts of people. And that changes. In that sense, it's grassroots. So do you see that when Jesus says there are things that we owe our government, 
The, the, state, the statement clearly assumes that no matter what nation the Lord has providentially made you a citizen of, that government has a legitimate place of authority in your life. Not once we approve, like, okay, now you can. It just does. And keep in mind, <clears throat> Jesus doesn't say this to Israel when David's reigning on the throne, right? <clears throat> this isn't during the Reagan administration. He, he's saying this to, to, to Jews under the oppressive Roman rule. The Apostle Paul explains this further, how we are to live uh, in regards to our government in Romans 13. And, and by that time, there's this guy named Nero who's the emperor. Um, when I was in college, I had this program called Nero that we, we used. We would, honestly, we'd steal MP3s and then we would put them onto CDs. And this program we used was called Nero. And I always wondered why. Uh, the reason why is that Nero was the Roman emperor at this time. And, and, and not only did he throw Christians to do wild dogs to be eaten, he would actually burn Christians in his garden using them as torches. And that was the connection to the application or the app, uh, burning CDs. It's sick when you think about it. Uh, but, but that's what's going on here. He, he's just absolutely ruthless emperor. And, and that, that's the governing emperor when Paul writes this in Romans 13. Listen to this. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there's no authority except from God and those who, that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who, who resist will incur judgment. For the rulers are not a terror to good conduct but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who, who's in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. A few years after that was written, the apostle Peter in 1 Peter 2.17 says this, Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Honor the emperor. But back to Jesus' statement here. Jesus teaches us that submission to God doesn't nullify our responsibility to submit to our earthly governing authorities. Rather, it becomes the basis for why we submit to our government. As Christians, we are dual citizens, right? We belong to the nation that God has placed us in, including the local state, uh, state county, whatever, city government. We're also citizens of, in the far superior and eternal kingdom of God, Philippians 3.20, right? Our citizenship is in heaven. Uh, as Christians, we are members of the church and the state, and we have unique obligations to each authority. Uh, Michael Horton, who was uh, one of Ryan's professors, actually, Michael Horton uh, shows us be uh, belonging to two kingdoms and the way that it actually changes our thinking. He says, the, the good things that we do with non-Christian citizens to preserve and engage society really are good, but they are not ultimate goods. The earthly city will never be transformed into the city of God this side of Christ's return in glory. He goes on to explain that as Christians, we don't approach politics with the expectation that through this we are going to save the world. If anything, we do it that through this we are going to serve the world. Or, or to put it another way, we're, we're not preparing a home for Jesus, are we? We're not, we're going to fix this place up and invite you back. Rather, Jesus is preparing an earthly home for us. John 14, 2 explained that to you. Or, or as Hebrews 12, 28 points out, um, we're not tasked with building the kingdom for God. Rather, we are receiving the kingdom from God. So then, what are some ways that we properly render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, right? Or in our case, to Uncle Sam, the things that are Uncle Sam's. Uh, the first and most obvious application here is paying taxes. 
Yay, right? Uh, yeah. Even when you are frustrated at how foolishly that money is going to be spent, we pay the taxes. One of the things to see here, though, and few of us probably do, is that we can actually pay our taxes to the glory of God when we do so in the obedience to Christ. It'd be a very different experience. Uh, second, while not explicit in this passage, we learn from 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 3, uh, to pray for our leaders in government. Uh, the passage says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. Right? And just in case you're thinking, oh, that, that excludes the government leaders, at least the worst ones, right? Uh, it goes on and he says this, For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way, this is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. In our pastoral prayers, we prayed for President Obama, we pray for President Trump, and we'll pray for whoever is inaugurated on January 20th next year. Not, not because we're pleased always with the leadership that we see, but because our Lord has called us to pray for them. That's a way to, to do, do what we're supposed to do. And so we pray for, you know, do this. Do pray for Supreme Court judges. Pray for uh, Governor Laura Kelly. And I don't mean imprecatory psalms, right, against them. Strike her down, that kind of thing. Pray for them, that they'll lead well. Pray that they'll come to faith. Pray that they're going to have wisdom, even if you don't think they've had any yet. You know, pray for our, our county and city commissioners who are facing difficult decisions right now on how to lead. We, we probably all have some disagreement with the way things are going, but who wants to be in that position? It's not an easy situation they're in. Pray for them. And, and listen, <clears throat> there is a place for lamenting when the government is not good. Uh, my Bible in a year reading had me in Esther this week, um, and things could not have gone worse politically for the Jews in Susa. That's modern-day Iran. Uh, Anyway, this decree is given, and the decree has this, these are the words in it, this is a quote, uh, to give instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, uh, right? So that happened long before Second World War. Anyway, um, <clears throat> how do they respond? You kind of think, what, what, are they going to get their army together? Are they rioting? Are they getting a militia together? How are they going to respond to this? And I'm just kind of floored by it. Listen to their response in Esther 4.3. And in every providence, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. They lamented. Not just anger. And I'm not saying anger is wrong. Don't yell at me, Rodney. Um, there's a place for that. But there's also a place for lamenting. That's a, like a lost art among God's people. Uh, Christians, we, we lament too little. We, we can and we should lament by expressing grief and sorrow and tears and fasting and prayers when we see injustice and corruption in our government. There's, there's a place for that. I'm not saying we receive everything and like, oh, that's great. You know, there is place for lamenting. And lamenting, the, the beauty of it, and the prayer and the fasting is we're, we're looking to God, not, you know, you know God, you s just wait, I'll take care of this. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're going to the Lord with our sorrows. Third thing, then, uh, we give to, to Caesar is civil obedience. It's the worst, right? But it is. Our obedience to the governing authority nationally and locally honors the Lord. Uh, J.C. Ryle said this, he said, So long as we have liberty to worship God in Christ according to our conscience and to serve him in the way of his commandments, we may safely submit to many requirements of the state which in our own private opinion we do not thoroughly approve. 
Of course, there are a few exceptions. When the government interferes with proper obedience and worship of God, we, we must disobey. We must speak the truth of Scripture. We must share the gospel, no matter what the law might forbid us from doing us. That's actually the specific situation when the apostles Peter and John are speaking to the Jewish Sanhedrin, a, a court. Uh, and in Acts 5.29, they say this, we must obey God rather than men. Right? You've got to know that within context, not just... Anyway... Um, but even then, even when we must break the law in order to honor God, to obey God, we've we got to be prepared to actually suffer the penalty of the law. Uh, again, in, in Esther, later she, she disregards the, land of the, land, uh, the law. She's going to go into the king and she's going to speak to him. And no one's supposed to do that unless you're invited in by the king. And this might cost her her life. And in Esther 4.16, she asks God's people to fast. And then this is what she says. I love this. She says, I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. She knows there's a risk. But civil obedience, I want you to understand this, is what your Lord calls you to. That's to be our, our aim. Fourth, we owe Caesar participation in public life. Since we, we do live in a democracy, one way we participate in public life is by voting in a way that, uh, as best possible, adheres to biblical views. I'm not saying if you abstain from voting that that's sin. But it is a, a wonderful and beneficial way that you can participate and serve, serve your nation and, and local government. We also participate in public life by serving in the military and by working in ways that improve our nation, right? The uh, creation mandate. Or, or maybe you partake by even running an office yourself. Any of you run, I'm going to vote for you, probably. Um, I want to hear what your views are first, you know. What's your logo? That kind of thing. Um, we participate in, in public life by the way that we joyfully serve in mercy ministries. Things like the bread, uh, Flint Hills bread baskets, Samaritan's Purse, whatever else there might be. And even in little ways, we, we actually participate in our society by, by simply serving the people who live in your dorm or live down the street from you and, and you see needs among you. Uh, we also participate in public life by speaking scriptural truth on, on ethics and poverty and business and justice and education and racism, abortion and marriage and war and any other issues which have a moral dimension to them, that we speak that into the, the public domain. Uh, and while we might encourage and vote for political solutions to these things, that's absolutely fine. We should never view politics as the solution to the deeper needs of every human soul. Namely, the forgiveness of sin and the relationship with God through Christ. Now, Riken summarizes all this giving to Caesar by saying this. Uh, here are the basic principles that Christians need to follow in their religion and their politics. Pay your taxes, pray for your leaders, practice civil obedience, participate in public life according to your particular calling from God. And so the other question then is, what are the things that we render to God? It is a far greater and more vast uh, subject. We're going to spend less time on that because it's also far more reaching. It, it unfolds as you spend time in your word and you get to see what is it that God demands of you or calls of you. Uh, both, actually. Uh, and so Jesus here, though, I mean, think about this. Here, here Jesus pointed to this coin and he's making a point about the ownership of Caesar, right? The rightful authority of owner. And he, and he does it by saying, look, look at the image on the front of this coin. It belongs to Caesar. And the unspoken flip side of the issue, not the coin, is, is that every soul that has ever been conceived is made in the image of God. You're made in the image of God. Genesis 1.27, speaking of Adam and Eve, 
And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. We belong to God. Caesar belongs to God. You belong to God. And as his image bearers, we owe so much to God. In all of human history, along with yours and my own heart, the depths of our heart, is a testament to our failure to render to God the things that are God's. It absolutely is. Love, obedience, worship, submission, glory. If we really want to get detailed on that list, we could be here for the rest of the week easily. Uh, The list would go on and on. Furthermore, Jesus knows the debt that we owe to God for our sin. The Father knows it. But what does Christ do? The incarnation. God in human flesh. Jesus comes to rescue his beloved people. He pays the debt for our sin upon the cross. And in that sense, you could say that we now doubly belong to Christ. 1 Corinthians 6.20, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So what do we render to God? How do we even put this into words? We, We render everything. Everything. We render honor to God. We render love. We render godly fear. We render prayer. We render hospitality to others. We render our finances to God. And I don't just mean giving to the church or other uh, mercy ministries and such. I mean every single cent that we spend on anything, we, we render to the Lord. We render our bodies and our eyes and our minds and our hearts and the way we use them and treat them. We render obedience to his word even when that puts us in conflict with the norms of a secular society. It also means this, and this is where it comes back around the passage. It means provided the government doesn't prohibit our worship or force us to sin, by rendering what is God's, we also render obedience to the government our Lord has sovereignly placed us in authority over. And as you spend time with the Lord and his word, I I want you to continue to look for things that we are to render to God. It's parsed out throughout the entire scriptures. Now, I'm not 100% sure how to end this, except for, I'll put it this way. I, I by nature, am an anti-authoritarian. Laura used to think it was weird when we were, I don't even remember when it was, but I remember pulling up to a road that was closed, and she's like, that road's closed, you can't go down it. And I was like, yeah, it looks fine. And drive around the sign. And I kind of thought, like, road closed. This is information you're giving. And I analyze your information. Now I do whatever I want. Um, and the government meant me to, like, don't drive down this road. And, and she was just kind of appalled that, why would you do that? Because her whole life, she's been the rule keeper. And I thought, like, detention was a, you know, well done. You're being awarded. Um, that's my nature, when it comes to the government, all these things, I, I will say this, that, that submission in my life has mostly been, I'd say I submitted, but really what I meant is I have come to agreement with you. Almost most of my submission in my life, and in fact, one of the biggest areas of sanctification in my life is learning to be, I don't agree with you, I think you're wrong, okay, I'll do it. And actual submission. I, I'm willing to bet that we don't submit a lot in our life, we just agree or do whatever we want. Am I the only one? Maybe I'm the worst one in this room. That's been my life. Um, and it's been a challenge to my sanctification. So I encourage you, as much as you want to push back against it, and there are nuances that probably are right to push back on uh, in some aspects, but as much as you want to push back, it, to really take this to heart, what the, what the Lord is telling us. Um, it's hard. It is very difficult. But I, that's my prayer for me, that I want to learn to submit to the Lord in all the ways that he calls me to submit to authorities, because I'm just not good at it. 
that is a work of the Spirit that is necessary in, in me. And so I, I say that because I don't want you to think I'm up here and know what's up. Uh, I am still learning that myself. Uh, let's pray. Uh, Father, teach us to willingly give our civil government all that belongs to it. And empower us in the Spirit to worshipfully give to you all that belongs to you. All that we are. Lord, help us to, to learn what submission and honoring you looks like, even when it's not comfortable for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.